Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. that lived under Caesar Nero. <laughs> Caesar Nero is literally burning Christians alive. I mean, state-sponsored persecution. You want to talk about uh, a tension of knowing how to live both in this world and in the kingdom. I think about Christians today, us. <clears throat> we have to live in this world. We have to live in this country, and there's many good things about living in this country, but uh, there's also you know, things like genocide on the unborn that's happening every day, and we have to live with that. We have to decide how are we supposed to deal with that when we know that thousands, tens of thousands of babies are being murdered every day. Um, so every generation, we're good? Praise God. Um, okay, every generation has to figure out as Christians how to wrestle, how to wrestle with that. It's never going to be comfortable. I don't care what generation you live in. Because we live in a fallen and a broken world. And because we don't belong to this world, we belong to the next one. So the question for us, I think, to wrestle with this morning is how do we live in that tension? How do we live in that tension? I think that this topic is appropriate. Not only does it come up in the text, but it's appropriate considering um, a lot of the things that are going on right now in our government, a lot of things that are going on in our our nation. And a lot of Christians, I think, are feeling um, more and more uncomfortable. They feel more and more uncomfortable with the the way that immorality is moving in our country. They feel um, uncomfortable with a lot of things. And the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, how do we deal with that? Because guess what? You're not the first Christians to ever feel like you don't belong. You're not the first Christians to ever feel uncomfortable with things that our government is doing, things that our society is doing, things that our culture is doing. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, how do we approach those things? When should we, when should we comply with government? When should, when, should, when should we rebel against government? What should a Christian's relationship to the government and culture and society be? Now, let me give you a quick preface before we get into this material. Christians in this subject that I'm bringing up, Christians tend to lean on the opinions and experiences and hypotheticals when it comes to this. It's like this is the part where we close our Bibles and we go, yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about the Revolutionary War? Yeah, but what about if this was the case? What about if that was the case? Well, what if the government does this? And what is, what is, what, what if, what if, what if? Now, I'm not saying we're not going to talk about those. I'm not saying those aren't helpful. But the problem is a lot of time we say, well, the Bible doesn't really say, so let's close it and let's talk about what we think. But the question comes down to, are we really people of the book? Are we more willing to tune into what we do know the Bible does say than we are to tune into what we think the Bible might say or we think that maybe it should say? And we have to remember that the Bible was not written as an instruction manual. Do you know what I mean by that? It wasn't, meant, it wasn't written like an encyclopedia that you could look up every potential thing that might come up and see what exactly you're supposed to do. The Bible is written as a narrative of God's redemptive work to redeem and restore all of humanity and his creation. That's the Bible. So we can't necessarily find chapter and verse to answer every question we might have about how we're to live in the times that we live in. Part of being a Christian is wrestling daily with the Holy Spirit sometimes. 
and, and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? So I brought up Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, some people have different opinions about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Should he have done what he did? I mean, he, he basically tried to assassinate Hitler, which I'm like, sweet. <laughs> God, he's a good down, right? But people go, well, should he have done that? Was that disrespecting Romans chapter 13 and et cetera, et cetera? The fact of the matter is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer answers the Lord. And I answer to the Lord, and you answer to the Lord. At the end of the day, we have to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me give you a little bit of the outline um, of our passage. So we're going to be finishing chapter 22 and starting chapter 23. And the passage really breaks down into, I think, four main sections. So um, those are on your handouts. If you didn't get a handout and you're tuning in or you're on the live stream, um, I'll just read them real quick. So first, we're going to learn from Paul's, by the way, we're going to learn from Paul's experience um, on how we should interact, I think, with authority and government, and we're going to learn from four different things. First, we're going to learn from a smart decision that Paul makes, and that's in verse 22 through 29 of chapter 22. And then we're going to see a humble decision, so a smart decision and a humble decision, and that's uh, the uh, verse 1 through 6, basically. Uh, and then we're going to see a bad decision by Paul, verses 7 through 10 chapter 23. And then we're going to see a really good reminder in verse 11. So that's just kind of a, a breakdown of the passage. And as we go, we're basically going to focus on and highlight four main truths that I think we as Christians need to tune into as we wrestle with these kinds of questions. So four main truths, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you um, in on them as we go through the passage. If you're filling in the blanks, I'll give them to you as they come up. Now, let me get you into the narrative of where we're at. We're teaching through the book of Acts, and Acts is literary. It is a literary material. That means it's, it's a story, okay? It's a narrative. So for that reason, it's really important that you catch the narrative flow of the book of Acts. We've been following the main character of the book of Acts, which is Jesus, okay? And you're saying, wait a minute, he died and rose. Isn't it Peter and Paul? No, the main character of the book of Acts is Jesus, and it's the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And we've been following the explosion of the gospel all throughout from, from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Um, Paul, the apostle, the primary, um, really the primary missionary selected by Christ to be his messenger to the Gentiles, has been spreading the gospel all throughout the ancient world. He went on three consecutive missionary journeys. We've studied all of those. And now we're coming into the part of the book where Paul ends his missionary journeys, not because he wants to, but because he gets arrested. And really from the rest of the book, we're going to be looking at the trials of Paul the apostle um, under different uh, rulers. So this, the, the, the book takes a serious turn here. The, sh the shift in the narrative is, is, is pretty drastic. And it's interesting that Luke, the author, spends so much time really breaking down um, the, the nitty gritty of these trials. But that's what we're going to get into. And I think there's a lot of things you know, that we can learn uh, in these. <clears throat> now, Paul, if you remember, he came back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He came back uh, from Jerusalem with an offering, and he had that offering that he had taken from the Gentiles to give to the church in Jerusalem. He brings the offering to the church of Jerusalem. Uh, they receive it and let him know that, hey, there's some bad word about you uh, within the, the Jewish Christians that you're saying that, um, that, that you're against or anti the law, uh, um, the, the Mosaic law. And so Paul sort of says, no, that's not, that's not the reality. And to show solidarity, he, he decides to take this um, Nazarite vow with four other uh, Jewish Christians. And so he's in the temple daily going through the motions of this. And as he's going through the motions of this in the temple, some, uh, some non-Christian uh, Jews from Ephesus see Paul, recognize him, and start a mob. 
Okay, they start a mob, and they basically want to see him dead. So, so they, they get all these guys stirred up. Um, this, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They're all attacking Paul. And as they're attacking Paul, the Romans, who was the governing authority at the time, they insert themselves into the situation, and they remove Paul from the mob. They save his life. Okay, and as they're carrying him up the stairs, they literally have to carry him up the stairs because he is so badly beaten. As they're carrying him up the stairs... Um, Paul stops like a good missionary and he says, hey, can I preach to the crowd that was just trying to kill me? And the Romans say, sure. So he stands up and he gives this oration and he explains who he is and where he came from and how Jesus intersected with him on the road to Damascus um, and how all everything has changed for Paul because of the risen Jesus Christ and the preaching falls on deaf ears. The Jews hear him and it just infuriates them. And that's where we pick up here in verse 22. It says, up to this word, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, it's what you do when you're Jewish and you're mad in those days. You fling dust in the air, right? You throw off your cloaks. Um, you should try it sometime. It's really relieving, actually. It's like, it's like a yeah, like a pressure valve. Um, the, the, the tribune, verse 24, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Okay, so here's what's happening. After Paul explains everything, the Romans apparently didn't understand anything he was saying. Uh, they didn't get it, or maybe the, the, the explanation he gave didn't really matter to them. So, now they pull Paul in and they say, okay, we'll just beat him and get it out of him. Because that's what Romans did. Okay, they beat you to figure out what the truth was. Now, this isn't just a, a small beating. This isn't just a couple of lashes with a whip. What the Romans would have done was they would have beat him with something called the flagellum. The flagellum was leather straps with on the end had bones and pieces of glass and things that were designed basically to dig into your flesh and rip your back off. It's the same thing Jesus was beaten with. The Romans were really violent people. Uh, they really were violent. They were, they, there was a reason that they were able to keep their power, and doing things like this helped. So they say, take this guy, beat him senseless until he tells us what's really going on. We want to know why this riot started with this guy, okay? Now, this, this beating would have probably left Paul maimed for life. Most people that took a beating from a flagellum uh, from, a, from a Roman guard would oftentimes, uh, they wouldn't walk again. Okay, so Paul uh, realizes this just got real serious. And it took a lot for Paul to feel like something was serious. That guy got beat up every day. Right? I mean, he was constantly getting it beat up for sharing his faith. But he realizes, wow, this is getting really serious. And so in this moment, in verse 25, he turns to them and he says, when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So Paul knew his rights. And, and for some reason, he waits until this point. I would have been like right away, like, here's my Roman card. I'm a Roman citizen, but for some reason, he waits until the very last minute, and he goes, hey, wait, you can't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights, okay? Now, let me read uh, from the commentator, I. Howard Marshall. He says, the Lex Valeria and the Lex Porcia were ancient laws that prohibited the beating and even the fettering of Roman citizens, and this right was confirmed by Lex Julia, probably uh, from Julius Caesar, which gave citizens in the provinces the right 
of appeal to Rome. There were circumstances in which a magistrate might so act against a Roman, but only after a proper trial. So it is quite clear that Paul had the law on his side in this particular instance. It might surprise you that Roman citizens had a lot of rights. Okay, they had a lot of rights. If he's not a Roman citizen, they can do whatever they want to him. But the fact that he is a Roman citizen means that they are legally not allowed to beat him or even fetter him, even put handcuffs on him without actually there being a trial. It also meant that he had the privilege to appeal to a higher court, similar like we have with our Supreme Court system. He could appeal to Caesar, and that's exactly what he does. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts is about his appeals up higher, up and higher in the chain until he gets to Rome. Okay, um, But Paul, my point here is that Paul had no problem exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, did he? Read on, 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. It's kind of an interesting dialogue here. The tribune um, basically says, oh, you're a citizen? Well, who isn't? Okay, because I actually spent a ton of money to become a citizen is what this tribune says. Now, if you look up Roman law, you actually couldn't buy citizenship. It's not like something you could go down to the market and say, I'll have Roman citizenship, please. Um, You only could become a Roman citizen by birth or if it was awarded to you for some kind of an act to Caesar, if you did a service to Caesar. So Paul, he's a Roman citizen by birth. We don't know how his parents became Roman citizens. It doesn't really matter. The tribune says, man, I had to buy mine. In other words, I had to bribe somebody to get mine. But Paul says, I was born into into being a Roman citizen. Now this this ups things. This becomes serious for the tribune. He realizes I could be in big trouble if they find out that I've arrested this guy and was about to beat him and he's a Roman citizen. 29, those who were about to examine him withdrew withdrew from him immediately and the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, so what do we learn? Here's our first, our first point here. Paul had no qualms about claiming his citizenship. You notice that? It's not as though Paul went, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen, but I'm a Christian. I'm a citizen of heaven, so therefore I can't exercise my rights. He didn't do that. That's the first thing I want you to see here. So our, main, our first main point here, our first truth, if you want to write it down, uh, is as dual citizens, we would be foolish not to exercise our national rights. As dual citizens, we would be foolish not to exercise our natural, our national, pardon me, our national rights. Listen, God formed legitimate governments as a common grace to a fallen, broken world. Let me say that again. God formed and forms legitimate governments. I say legitimate because not anybody can just walk up and say, hey, I'm the government. Okay, uh, legitimate governments as a common grace. You know what a common grace is? A saving grace is when God comes in and he saves you. Common grace is God's just being gracious to humanity. God graciously to, in a fallen world allows there to be government because without government, there's nothing to restrict evil. If you don't believe me, look at what happened in Iraq. Okay, as soon as they took out the government, it was basically anarchy. It was a disaster. Even though that government was terribly wicked and immoral, Americans were starting to ask the question, maybe we should have left them. Because the absence of government oftentimes is worse than a bad government. Okay, so government is a legitimate government. Government is a common grace in a fallen world to restrict evil and bring human flourishing. Now, not all government does that. But my suggestion to you is, is that as Christians, we have every right to exercise our citizenship 
although it is a secondary citizenship to our true citizenship, we have every right to exercise those rights. If my kids go over to, let's say, their cousin's house, and the cousin's house, uh, they say, hey, we're going to have pizza for dinner. Now, I want my kids to enjoy that. Okay, I want my kids to be like, yeah, we'll have pizza for dinner. We probably wouldn't have had pizza for dinner at mom and dad's. But here we are. We'll have pizza for dinner. But if they say, hey, now we're going to go, you know, clean the shotguns and eat a bowl of sugar or whatever, you know, my kids are going to be like, oh, no, that's not cool. So in reality, God wants us to enjoy the rights that we have been given and have been bought and paid for by many lives in our country. He wants us to enjoy those rights as long as they do not um, counteract or contradict, pardon me, as long as they don't contradict his higher law. Okay, so, so do we have rights as, as Christians, as Americans? Yes. Should we exercise those? Yes, as long as it does not conflict with what we know to be right um, in the eyes of God. Now, here's a few implications to this point. Okay, uh, first, we should expect those in authority to follow their own laws and standards. Okay, we should expect the government, and that's all that Paul's doing here. He's, he's basically holding the, the, the tribune to follow the law that the tribune is supposed to follow. Tribune didn't make the law, but he's supposed to follow it. So Paul says, hey, I'm a citizen. You know the law, so don't beat me. <laughs> okay? Perfectly perfectly allowable. Okay? Uh, this, this is, I'm not going to get into that. Okay. Uh, another implication. Christ did not call his fo- followers to suffer needlessly. Now, Jesus did tell his disciples that they were going to suffer, right? But he didn't tell them they should just go suffer just to suffer. He said, go throw yourself in front of a train and you suffer for Christ. Like, No. If persecution comes, then you suffer. But ultimately, Paul didn't need to take a beating that he didn't need to take, did he? He didn't need to take a beating that he didn't need to take. Another implication is that our rights should be utilized to the fullest degree to pursue what is right. As Christians, if we're not pursuing the rights that we have to bring justice, then we're missing it. We're missing it. Peaceful and legal means have brought some of the greatest changes in our culture, have they not? Okay, not burning down buildings, not pillaging, not ripping off Nikes from a Nike store, not burning police cars. That is not a legitimate way to get change. What is a legitimate way to get change? Using the means that we have, the legal means that we have. Christians have been doing this forever. Think about William Wilberforce. Think about Martin Luther King. Think about people that said, we are going to change society, but we're not going to do it by burning down police cars. We're going to do it through legitimate means, okay? We're going to do it through legitimate means. So there's a lot of churches right now that are saying, hey, we're going to sue the government. We're going to, you know, you can do that because our constitution affords that. Now, whether it's a good idea or not, we don't need to get into that. But you can do that. Uh, There are people that are trying to hold up abortions um, through court systems. Do it. If we could stop the genocide on the unborn through a court system, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. I think that God has given us the grace of government, and though it's fallen, we should access it. Are you guys with me? Okay, you don't have to agree with me, but you get what I'm saying, right? Okay, Uh, second section here is Paul's humble decision, and that's in verse 30. So, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the Romans are still trying to figure out who Paul is and why everyone wants to kill him, but now they can't beat him to question him. So now they got to figure out another way. Paul's a Jew. They're in Jerusalem, so they call the Jewish leadership, which was called the Sanhedrin. 
Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 members. It's the same, the same council that Jesus was illegally murdered um, by. 70 members plus one, which would be the high priest. It was made up of different parties. Um, Sanhedrin was made up of, of Pharisees, as we'll see, Sadducees, um, scribes, different people like this. So the, the tribune asks the, the Sanhedrin to come and to, to, to try to examine Paul and figure out what is going on. This probably wasn't a formal gathering. It was probably more of an informal pretrial examination. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, remember, Paul's a Jew. Okay, these are his brothers. Ethnically, his brothers. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Okay? Paul has worked hard at making sure that he did not offend his conscience and did not offend the Holy Spirit. Now, we could look back at things that Paul did and say, maybe that wasn't the best idea. But one thing Paul can say is that he did what he thought was right. He did what he thought was right. And he knew that he was standing innocent of their charges. So his first thing out of his mouth to this Sanhedrin is, hey, look, I've never done anything that you guys should be wanting to kill me for. Okay? And then verse 2, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> Can you imagine how Paul feels like? You know, what do you have to say for yourself, Paul? I haven't done anything wrong. Bow! You get beat right in the face. I mean, like, what in the world elicits that, right? Well, we know from Josephus, this, this early historian, we know that Ananias was a pretty bad dude, <laughs> okay? He was not a good guy. He probably had a temper. Power gets to your head, right? Um, he, had a, he had a bad temper. We know that the high priest was basically the Jewish mafia. They made tons of money off of the temple, uh, they took advantage of people. That's why Jesus called them dead tombs. <laughs> like, you know, Jesus had some harsh words to say to these guys. And so does Paul. So look at what Paul does after he gets, he gets smacked in the mouth. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, <laughs> you whitewashed wall. I love that. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul has some harsh words for these guys, right? He has some harsh words. And this is doubly insulting. It's insulting, first of all, because calling him a whitewashed wall uh, would have been a reference to Ezekiel chapter 12. These guys would have known that. Ezekiel chapter 12, the Lord is basically ranting through Ezekiel about how the, the, the prophets, the false prophets, made a shabby wall that was terrible, didn't do a good job, but they threw whitewash over the top. So in other words, it's fake, it's phony, it's false. But when the rains come, it's gonna wash it away. So Paul's basically like, hey, you're that wall. <laughs> you're phony. And then he calls him a hypocrite. He says, you're the law enforcer and you're breaking the law because the law specifically said, the law of Moses, that you're not supposed to strike anyone like that. So specifically, Paul calls him out doubly. You know, Paul had a fiery human side, didn't he? He's not the Christ. He's a man. He's like you and me. Okay, he's, he, he's, he's a human being and his humanity comes out here. But what I want you to see is in verse four, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, ah, I didn't know. I didn't know that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, quoting Exodus 22:28. So Paul immediately goes, oh man, I didn't realize it was the high priest. He didn't. Now, we don't know why he didn't know. There's a few potentials out there. Probably the most likely is that uh, this was an informal trial. High priest probably wasn't wearing his high priestly garb. And so Paul probably didn't realize that he was there. Secondly, Paul's been gone for 15, 20 years, I mean, on missions trips. And so he, th this is a different high priest who was in when Paul was a Pharisee. So he didn't know. It was a genuine mistake. 
okay? But what can we learn from this? Let's get, our, let's get to our second point here. So Paul understood the importance of respecting authority, didn't he? He understood the, even the guy that didn't deserve it. Because what does Paul do? He says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. It's unbiblical. And he recants his true statement because it was disrespectful. Paul understood that as God's people, we are called to respect authority. Now, this is where this sermon is going to start to pinch you a little bit, okay? Because we are called as Christians to respect and honor our authorities. Respect, and now we live in a pretty free country, which is nice. It means that we can, we can tweet things, okay? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't tweet things. I mean, Jesus, remember what he said about Herod? <laughs> He's like, that guy's a fox, and don't think about fox like we use it. That was a way of basically saying he's like a snake, man. Like, like, like Jesus had things to say about people. doesn't mean that we couldn't, can't say things, but it means that we as Christians should be respectful. So here's point number two, if you want to jot it down. As dual citizens, we have a biblical mandate to honor authority. We have a biblical mandate, mandate to honor authority. Okay, and this doesn't preach well in Southern Oregon. Okay, uh, but this is the reality. Okay, we have a biblical mandate to honor authority. Authority. Now, you could just say, Sam, you're just, where are you getting that? It's all over the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at both of them. But Romans chapter 13, verse 6 is respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And that's right after Paul basically goes off saying, you need to submit to authority. You need to submit to government. Jesus himself said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, that's not a popular message. If you want to gather a crowd, tell everyone not to obey the government. That's how, you'll, that's how you'll gather a crowd. But that's not the point. That's not the point. So let me ask a few questions on this point here that, that you guys might be asking. Number one, why should we respect and submit to authority? Why should we respect and submit to authority? What if authority doesn't deserve our respect? A lot of times authority doesn't deserve your respect. Well, first of all, God is sovereign over all authority. Okay, look at Romans chapter 13, verse one. I'll just read it. Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, now I know that, that leads into all kinds of awkward tendencies. What about bad governments? The reality, though, the point here that Paul's trying to get across is that all government ultimately is established by God. Now, we're in a fallen world, so governments aren't perfect, and governments are often far from perfect. But God is ultimately sovereignly allowing authorities to rise and fall, by the way, rise and fall for the purpose that he has in mind. And we are called to submit to them. All governments will, listen, all governments will answer to God. You better believe it. You better believe it. You know, every person that takes over the world, they, they think they're getting away with something. They're not. Everything that happens in the dark, everything that happens on a battlefield, everything that happens in a policy or in a backroom deal or in, in, in whatever, everything will be judged. Everything will be dealt with. God not only assigns authority, but he judges authority. He uses it for his purposes. And I don't know if you've noticed, but God has basically toppled every person who's ever been in authority. <laughs> okay? They, they, don't, they don't all last forever. We submit to authority because it is directly attached to our witness. I want you to flip really, really quick over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is the only place I'll have you turn to here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your, keep your finger in Acts, verse 11. Beloved, Peter says, 
Uh, by the way, w- what was the government like when Peter wrote this? Was it a good government? Like, was it, was it an awesome, easy to submit to, really Christian government? It was Rome. It was Rome. You want to talk about wickedness, immorality, okay? It's Rome, okay? So 2 Peter 2, 11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, that's us, man. We're dual citizens. We don't belong here. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst, amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I know your Bible makes it look like another paragraph, but it's the same thought. He's going on the same thought here. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Why? Be subject why? Be subject why? For the Lord's sake, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Is that Bible? (laughs) How can that be Bible? It is. It is. What Peter is saying here is he's saying, if you want to live like a sojourner, which you are, and if you want to honor the Lord, then always look to submit to government, listen, whenever possible. Whenever possible. And that leads me to the next question is, when should we not submit to authority? I mean, you guys are all wondering that. Okay, but when do we not? I mean, was Bonhoeffer supposed to submit to Hitler? Okay, I think when, when at all possible, we should submit to authority unless we see authority stepping outside of what we know God has called us to do. If authority is asking us to do something or forcing us to do something that we know is not right, then I think we need to start looking at options. Here's some examples in the Bible. Daniel Okay, Daniel and his friends, they were under probably one of the most wicked governments ever. In fact, uh, the government they were under was so wicked, it became the archetype for all evil government in the book of Revelation. Okay, they got taken away to Babylon. Okay, and in Babylon, they were asked to do things that they knew God had told them not to do. And so they took a stand. They took a stand. They took a stand, not militarily necessarily, but they took a stand and said, no, we're not going to worship and bow down to the golden image. Uh, No, we're not going to eat the king's uh, meats that he's asking us to to eat. And uh, Daniel said, no, I'm not going to pray only to, uh, I believe it was the Xerxes or something. It it was a Persian by then. I'm I'm not going to only pray to him. I'm going to only pray to Yahweh. And ultimately, each of them had to deal with the consequences of that. We also see Jeremiah chapter 29, where God tells Israel that they are to submit themselves to the authority of Babylon, to live in Babylon. You're like, Babylon was the worst. Okay, so so we really need to understand here that we are called to respect authority whenever it does not conflict with what God has already told us to do. Okay, and I know that those those lines become gray, and that's where we really need to, to pray and wrestle. But what if government is corrupt and doing evil? What if the, what if the government isn't entirely evil? Okay, there may come a time where, where government needs to be overthrown. And I think God's common grace at times does that. I think God allows people to overthrow evil government. But it should be the last line of defense. Like, we have nuclear weapons in our country. 
Nuclear, 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 which, which is it? I don't know. Um, we, we, we save those for the very last line of defense, right? There's all kinds of things we can do before we pull out the nuclear weapons. In the same way as Christians, we should think, what are our first, second, third, fourth lines of defense when we start to see injustice happening? The first one, and this is going to sound cliche, it's prayer. Who overturns the nations? Who has the power? Who has the power to change our country? Who has the power to change our culture? Who has the power to change the world? Okay, more than anything else, God does. And, and I would just ask the question, this is intensely convicting for me, is we love to talk about how frustrated we are with the government. We love to talk about how bad culture is getting, but how often do we pray for our leaders? Look at the Old Testament. How many times did God, who was sovereign and powerful, intervene and actually bring regime change or bring what he wanted to bring without ever shedding any blood? Look at King Cyrus. In the book of Ezra, God actually just put it on King Cyrus's heart that he was going to send the Jews back and rebuild Israel. <laughs> this guy's the ruler of the ancient world. He doesn't care about the Jews. And there it is, the beginning of the book, God swayed his heart. Look at uh, the next book, uh, Nehemiah. Same exact thing. God sways the heart of Artaxerxes when he sees Nehemiah um, sad and downtrodden. Look at the book of Esther. Look at the book of Esther. God infiltrated the king's courts through this young woman, Esther, and he did it to save his people. How many times has God brought change, not by the sword, but by prayer? I'm not saying that we should be pacifists. I'm not saying there's never a chance or a reason that we should go to war, but I'm saying it should be the last possible thing ever because we have the privilege of asking God to change things for us. Okay, now let's look at the third section. By the way, I, I hope that you guys are thinking about these things. And I hope that you have questions because I want you to talk about these things. You know, I want you guys to talk. I want you to have a conversation about this. As Christians, we need to have a position on this stuff. We need to have a position. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we're like in one of the most politically charged moments of our country. I mean, good night, dude. It is like, it is just so polarized. And as Christians, we need to know where should we be in that? Okay, so think about this stuff. Now, when Paul perceived... Look at verse six. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and we're going to see Paul's bad decision, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now let me just uh, get to this as quickly as I can. Paul, before the court of the Sanhedrin, understands, you want to talk about polarization? You want to talk about um, fault lines? There were some major fault lines in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of two primary parties, Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were, uh, were essentially theologically liberal, it's supernaturally skeptical. Okay, so in other words, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any of the Bible except the first five books. And they didn't believe in any of the supernatural stuff. Angels, Holy Spirit, resurrection. They were incredibly skeptical in that. So they were sort of like uh, modern day liberals that uh, hold to maybe Scientology. Not Scientology, Scientism. That basically, you know, we, we shouldn't get into supernatural things. The Pharisees, on the other hand, of which Paul was part of, they were theologically conservative. They held to the entire uh, Old Testament scriptures, and they believed in all the supernatural stuff. And these guys don't like each other. They don't like each other. 
and, and they're on a they're sitting on a board together. <laughs> okay, ever sat on a board with someone that you didn't get along with? It's it's awkward. Okay, so so um, these two are are already at each other's throat. Paul knows this, and Paul knows that if he wants to throw a bomb or a grenade right into the middle, all he has to do is say that he's all about the resurrection. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees will go at it. And I think Paul has just a little bit of a bad idea here. He has a little bit of a bad idea. He's like, I think I'm going to get these guys, I think I'm going to get the Pharisees on my side. I think I'm going to get the Pharisees on my side because they will be supportive of the resurrection. So listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Uh, Pardon me. Okay, he says the reason I'm being held is because of the resurrection. And was that true? Not really. He's being held because um, they think he's defiling the temple. He's being held because they think he's anti-Jewish law. But Paul says, actually, they're holding me because of the resurrection. I think we see a little bit of Paul's flesh come out here. We see a little bit of a bad idea on Paul's part. Um, I don't think he's necessarily lying. But what he's doing is he's trying to get the Pharisees on his side, and it ultimately backfires. Look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' uh, party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. See how the Pharisees are on his side now? What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So what Paul did was he started basically a massive fight, and it got so violent he had to leave. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. I don't think I'm stretching it, by the way, thinking Paul was making a mistake here. Look at Acts 24.20 later. Paul basically later on, he admits that it was wrong. He admits that he shouldn't have done that. But my point here, point number three, if you want to fill it in. Point number three is this. As dual citizens, we need to avoid marriage to power and party. Power and party. This is really important. <laughs> okay. What happens when Christians latch on too tightly to particular political parties and particular political people and particular political power is that the gospel is compromised. Our witness becomes compromised. I'm not saying you can't have a candidate you like. I'm not saying you can't be in a party, a political party. I'm saying that when you fuse the gospel to that, you have compromised the gospel. Okay? You, what you've done is you've actually begun the journey of changing the gospel to fit your political party. And that's bad. What did Jesus do when he came? Jesus came onto the scene like a political wrecking ball. And everybody wanted him on their side, right? Because this guy was, he was charismatic. He could do miracles. Um, and everybody thought, man, how can we get this guy to agree with us? And every party tried. There was a lot of partisanship in, in, the, in the time that Jesus came into the world. Uh, you had the zealots. The zealots were the anti-Rome people. Okay, they were the people out there like you're seeing, you know, like burning down buildings and stuff. Like they hated Rome, rightly so. They hated Rome and they were trying to start a war with Rome. They eventually did, did and it ended up flattening the temple in 70 AD. So the zealots, okay, they were anti-Rome. And what would have happened if Jesus would have been like, I'm a zealot? What would have happened? His message would have been compromised because everyone would have been like, oh, Jesus is a zealot. I know his message. Jesus didn't do that. His message was not the message of the zealots. What about the Essenes? You're saying, who's the Essenes? The Essenes, they were the ones that had the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were this little community that was outside of Jerusalem by the Dead Sea. And they believed basically that we should be distanced, disconnected from culture. That was their approach. Okay, they were very legalistic. They were very much about being separated from the world. So what if Jesus had come on the scene and said, I'm an Essene? They would have been like, oh, he's that screwball people out in the desert, man. Forget Jesus. He didn't do it. 
What if Jesus had come into the scene and said, I'm a Pharisee? All the people that had been taken advantage of by the crooks that were the Pharisees, that were the, li- the lawyers of the day, that were really liars of the day, would have thought, oh, Jesus is just another self-righteous, pompous, religious person. Jesus did not align himself with any of those. He didn't align himself with Rome. He didn't align himself with the Sadducees. He didn't align himself with the scribes, the Pharisees, anybody. Why? Because the message of the gospel, listen, the message of the gospel is terrestrial. And the second that you try to mash it to a political party or political power or political person, then it compromises the terrestrialness of the gospel. Jesus came in and no one had ever seen anything like him because there hadn't been anything like him because he was God in human flesh. And the gospel is powerful because there is nothing like the gospel. The message of Christ is powerful because there is nothing like the message of Christ. I think, and I might get in trouble for this, I think Christian evangelicals, Christian evangelicals are in danger of compromising the gospel because they have got in bed with conservatism. Conservatism may have good points, but conservatism is not the kingdom of God. Conservatism is an American idea with some American values. The gospel is about the kingdom of God, not about make America great again. Okay, I'm sorry, but make America great again is not the kingdom of God. I'm all for making America great. Who isn't? Okay, but as Christians, if we are more focused on bringing back conservatism, the good old days, then we are bringing in the kingdom of God and we've missed it. Jesus is not part of the Democratic Party. Jesus is not part of the Republican Party. Now, we may have to sign Republican or Democrat on a ballot, and I get that. We all have to do that. But at the end of the day, you better vote the way Jesus says to, not the way your party says to. Okay? That's what sets us apart as Christians. There's a reason it's dangerous to have a pope. You, 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 you saddle the gospel to one person that has too much power, and eventually the gospel goes to seed. Every time the church gets in bed with the power, the gospel goes to seed. And then it pops back up in another place. Because the gospel cannot be controlled or manipulated, should not be controlled or manipulated by power for political reasons. As Christians, we need to think critically of both parties, of all policies, of all truths, Last point, we look at Paul's much-needed encounter. This is in verse 11. Paul's much-needed encounter. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him. I love this. This is like, there's been a few times where this has happened where Paul is just struggling. He's just struggling. He's up against a wall. Paul probably feels like such a loser right here. He came to Jerusalem to spread the gospel, to, to try to share about Jesus to his people, and so far no one has heard him. He, he's being judged and, and gossiped about by Christians within Jerusalem. Um, he just blew it before his chance to basically witness to the Sanhedrin because he came up with this idea to try to get them to maybe fight with each other. And he's, just, he's just feeling probably pretty low. And Jesus, who is our encourager, comes into Paul's moment with him, and he says these words. He says, Paul, take courage, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't come to Paul and say, don't worry, Paul, we'll fix the society. 
Don't worry, Paul, we'll fix Rome. Don't worry, Paul, we'll get it figured out. Don't worry, Paul, keep fighting for your values. Keep trying to control the ethics of our society. Keep doing that. That's not what he says. Now, I'm not saying those things are all entirely evil, but what he does say is keep telling people the gospel. That's your job. Your primary job as a Christian is to preach the message of Christ. That is how we change society primarily. Primarily. He doesn't say anything other than that. He says, Paul, you keep, you keep at it. You keep telling him. You keep telling him, and I will bring you all the way to Rome. And you will tell, the, you will tell Caesar's house themselves about the gospel. You remember the end of the book of Philippians, Paul's signing off on his letter. He says, by the way, Caesar's house greets you. What does that mean? It means that people in Caesar's house were getting saved because there's Paul putting out the gospel, putting out the gospel all the way to Rome. That was what he was called to do. That's what we were called to do. So here's point number four. As dual citizens, we are primarily called to be declarers, not enforcers. That doesn't mean that we stand for injustice. That doesn't mean that we allow things to happen. But I think sometimes when I look at the majority of what's coming out of mainstream Christianity, I see that they think their job is to enforce the ethics of all human beings, when in reality our job is to declare the gospel to all human beings. And I just don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> okay? Our job is not to control Pixar or Google although that may need to happen as, as American citizens, maybe we should do that. But our primary job as Christians is the declaration of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is our primary focus. And if we compromise our voice to lost and broken people because we're so worried about their sexual ethics and they're lost, we've completely compromised our chance to witness. Our primary purpose is the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter five, Verse 16, I'll end here. This is what Paul says. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. When he says flesh, he, he means physical things. Even though we once record, regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now listen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then he says this, listen, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is our job? We are ministers of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is bringing back together two things that have been severed. Some people do reconciliation counseling. There's people that have divorced or separated. They're trying to bring it back together. What, what happened when the world fell? God and man, which were designed to operate together, were severed at the garden, Genesis 3. God and man were designed to be together. God is our life. He is our truest self. Without him, life doesn't make sense. And at that moment, we were severed from God. What is the condition of humanity? It's not liberalism. It's that we are disconnected from God. That is the ultimate primary uh, paramount issue of humanity is that we need to be reconciled with God and all of the ethics will follow. The gospel is that we need to get people back to their father. And that's our job. We are ministers, he says, of reconciliation. So when we see people, now this is so hard for me. I was watching the news last night and I was watching people burn buildings down in a city that I go to. I was watching people break into a mall that I've been at. 
And everything in one of me just everything in me wanted to drive up there and punch them in the face. Stop breaking the city. And the next thought hit me. Wait a minute. You know what they need? They need reconciliation. These people are angry. They're angry because they're disconnected from God. They're angry because there's something broken in them and they don't have the power to fix it. And they think maybe if I break something, it'll fix me. Okay, they don't need to be punched in the face. They need to be reconciled to God. And that is our job. We are ministers of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, so that means that our job isn't just to sit here passively like waiting for the next kingdom to come. And our job also isn't to jump in like military people and go try to take the kingdom now. What's our job? Ambassadors. What's an ambassador do? An ambassador sets their purpose on reconciling two kingdoms. Our ambassadors right now that are all throughout the world, their job is to help communicate America's message to them, to keep our allies close, to keep open doors between the two. Our job is to ambassador the lost to who they need to be reconciled with. That's our job. That's what we do. And so when coronavirus comes and when looting comes and and when whatever comes, our immediate thought is not let's go to war. Our immediate thought is how do we have an opportunity here to be ambassadors, to reconcile these broken and lost people? We have to be looking for the opportunities. That's why we came to Grants Pass. That's why we planted this church, to be ambassadors of hope. Because for our sake, he, being God, made him, being Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. This is good news. So have I answered every question about how we should live amongst a government that we don't agree with? No. But the Bible doesn't necessarily answer all those questions. But what I think we need to remember is that the main thing is that we are ambassadors. And we have to ask ourselves, before we consider disobeying the government, before we consider going to war over things, before we consider disobeying any authority, we need to ask ourselves, is this helping us be ambassadors? Or is this actually setting us back further? Do people see our desire to change culture as actually just a desire to see our political party have more authority? Or do people actually see that we love them, that we care about them, that we want to see the best for them? You know, whether we like it or not, we live here. And we live in a really great place. We really should be thankful <laughs> that we live where we do. But don't forget why you're here. Okay, you're not here to sit on, you know, sleep on mom's couch and eat her chips. You know, we're here to see people come to Christ. Uh, may we not take for granted the rights that we have, but may we also not take for granted the mission that we've been given. Amen? Okay, I'm gonna pray. We'll get off the air and then get some discussion. Father, Thank you so much that your word does give us some clarity on these things. Lord, we pray that we would be those that think and uh, those that care more about building your kingdom than our own. Lord, those that, that care about lost souls. Lord, those that see people throwing fire at buildings and actually want to go tell them the truth. That's so hard for me, Lord. I just want to change the culture. I want to make everything better. I want to fix all the problems in Grant's past, Lord. And, and, and I should want to do that. But Lord, may we never forget that the way that we do that 
is through more people being born again, dying to their old self, their old way, and being born into the truth. Father, we just need you so, so bad right now. We need to be leaders. We need to be the city on the hill. We need to be different. And God, I just pray that the lost in the city would not see us as just being the zealots or being the Pharisees, but they would see us as being something entirely different, something they've never seen, something that's intriguing because it's you that they see. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, all right.